Please be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Hear the reading of the Word of God. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This ends the reading of the Word of God. We as evangelical Christians emphasize the necessity of the new birth, that you must be born again, that you must be converted. And in conversion, there is a, there is a conviction of sin, there is an opening of the eyes to the beauty of the gospel, there is a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. But we also recognize in conversion, one becomes an infant in Christ, And that there is a lifelong journey of progressive growth in the Christian life. Nobody is saved with all of their doctrine perfect. I don't think anyone dies with all of their doctrine perfect, actually. Nonetheless, we understand that as conversion is immediate, growth in the Christian life is progressive. And as Christians, we must pay attention to our growth first, and then pay attention to the growth and concern of others around us, that they might grow in grace and knowledge as well. And what we see here in this account is peculiar, and we will get into the details of it, is this progression. It's a progressive healing here. What we see is, as I've titled the message tonight, from confusion to clarity, This is very interesting. And what we need to do and understand about this passage, lest we make any grave errors, which you can with this passage, we must be very careful in handling this. Many have gone into dangerous territory in in seeking to explain this passage in a way that it shouldn't be. And so let's set the scene here for us to understand what's going on in the drama we call the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up until Mark chapter 8, verse 21, it can be understood as act 1. And that what Mark has done in his gospel is really put together three dramatic acts. Act 1, 2, and 3. Act 1 is the ministry of Jesus mostly in Galilee. I have said it, and if you've paid attention, Mark is very concerned about location. So really, chapter 1 through chapter 8, verse 21, Act 1, the ministry in Galilee. We could actually title Act 1, the power of the kingdom displayed in Galilee. And what we have here in verse 22 is almost like the opening of the curtain of Act 2. 
which will run from 8.22 through the end of chapter 10. This we can title, The Paradox of the Kingdom Disclosed. So Act 1, The Power of the Kingdom Displayed. Act 2, The Paradox of the Kingdom Disclosed. And what we have here, from here until the end of chapter 10, is the transition to Jerusalem. We know this because we can even look at this and Mark masterfully brackets Act 2. Act 2 opens with the healing of a blind man. How does it end? If you would just look over here at the end of chapter 10, it ends with Jesus healing a blind man. These are the only miracles in this, but it is bracketed by two healing miracles of blind men. This is important to the literary context and structure so that Again, we can make sense of what is going on here. In Act 1, Mark 1 through the middle of chapter 8, there are many healings. There are miracles. There's opposition from the religious crowd. There's the calling of the twelve. There's the struggle of the twelve all the way throughout. And let me just remind you how more or less the curtain closes on Act 1, verse 21 of chapter 8. We are left with a hanging question. Do you not yet understand? And so if you see this as a, as a drama unfolding, this question is posed, the curtain closes, and this is our final thought. And the answer is, at this point, the disciples don't really get it. They kind of get it, but they, they don't really get it. There's still much confusion. They've seen the work of God. They've seen Christ display his power. They've been there from the raising of the dead to the calming of the storms to the multiplying of matter. They've seen all these things, and yet they're on a boat worried about one loaf of bread and how they can feed themselves. And you have this list of questions, seven, maybe eight questions in this account here. And then the curtain closes. Act 2 begins. The curtain opens. And what we have here is the opening scene, which, verses 22 through 26, is like a bridge. It is carrying us over from what is just taking place, and it is pointing us forward to what is going to happen in this second act, through chapter, the rest of chapter 8, 9, and 10. So what Mark is doing here is he's, he's creating a bridge from back to forward, and he's linking it together with this account. This is very important because Mark is the only gospel writer who gives us this account. This isn't in Matthew, it's not in Luke, it's not in John. So Mark specifically gives us this for a purpose. And he is linking Act 1 to Act 2. So what we must do is pay very careful attention to this literary context. Because if we don't, we will miss the point of this peculiar healing. What's the key word in the gospel of Mark up until this point? If you, write, if you read the uh, King James Version, it might be straightway. If you have the ESV, it's immediately. 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 And this is going on and on and on and on, right? And now we get here and this isn't immediate. What are you doing, Mark? This is important. We must pay attention. And hopefully we will see as we unpack what's going on in this event. With that being said, we will draw connections as we move forward. Pay attention here to verse 22. And pay attention to the initial encounter that takes place. Act 2 opens up. Jesus and the disciples are landing at Bethsaida. They have left from the the western shores of of the Sea of Galilee. They have traveled northeast to Bethsaida. 
And this is a familiar territory to many of the disciples. Actually, it's Peter and Andrew's hometown. They had moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum, but this is their hometown. Philip, as well, is from here. This could have been a time as they land here to reunite with friends and family, to see loved ones for a short period of time because they've been on this mission with Jesus traveling all over. But it's not intended to be a long stay here. No, not at all. Jesus, is, Jesus has his eyes set to Jerusalem. There's a few places he needs to go, but he's making his way to Jerusalem. This is on the mind of Christ. But what we see here is the issue at hand. They come to Bethsaida, and what's the issue? We see that some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So up until this point, Jesus has not healed a blind man. Not in Mark's gospel, but any careful reader or listener up until this point would almost assume the obvious outcome of this situation. There's a blind man. Okay. There's been winds and waves. There's been storms. There's been demons and diseases and death, and they all obey him. What's this? There was a deaf man who Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and touches his tongue, and he is healed. So, in this account, what would make it any different? Just to think this would be a simple healing. But I want us to observe something here. Observe the people in verse 22. I don't want us to lose sight of these people. People are begging Jesus. They're begging Jesus for a good work to be done. This is the third time that this has happened in as many as a chapter or so. Remember, look, if you would look, think back, there's the Gentile woman back in chapter 7. What does she do? She begs Jesus. She begs Jesus for the healing of her daughter. But this passage here quite resembles the healing of the deaf man, where the friends bring their, their deaf and friend who is hard and, and, and can't speak well, they bring him to Jesus, and it says that they begged him. They urged Jesus. They pleaded with Jesus to heal their friend. And once again, we have this third account of those begging Christ, friends of the infirmed that beg, urge, and plead for grace and mercy to be shown to their companion. Let's not lose sight of these people. They believed that Jesus was able to do this. They had confidence in Christ. They knew that he could if he would. We also see concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that just a touch was all that was needed in order to make this man well. Well, look at verse 23. How does Christ respond to the begging of these people? Notice, without hesitation. There's no pause. We read here, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Jesus responds to the faithful pleading of the people. Why? Because Jesus delights in showing grace and mercy. It is no burden for him to show goodness because in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is his nature. So he takes the blind man by the hand and, it, and he led him out of the village. Imagine what that conversation was like. As the friends bring their 
their, their, their blind friend. They certainly have to lead him to, to the presence of Christ. And Jesus says, hey, friend, come with me. Let's go for a walk. No need to worry. I've got you by the hand. I will lead you. You don't know me, but I know you. I'm a stranger to you, but you're not a stranger to me. You are safe with me. Let us go to a quiet place. We also see here that the blind man does not hesitate. Why? Because there's something about Jesus that even if Jesus was a stranger to this man, he felt safe with him. He was willing to go and to be led by Christ in this moment. What does this show us about Jesus? First and foremost, that the Lord leads the helpless. The Lord leads the helpless. Second, we can see that the Lord directs the path. Third thing I can, we can see about Jesus taking this man by the hand is that the Lord Jesus Christ is gentle to the weak and he is patient with the blind. This here in verses 22 and 23 is the initial encounter. I think about how Jesus engaged with this man initially. And I often wonder, what aroma of Christ do I project? What message of Christ do I give off when people initially encounter me as a Christian? Am I one that is quick to take someone by the hand, compassionate to lead the helpless, to direct them on the path that leads to life, to be gentle with the weak, to be patient with the blind? Or am I someone who's dismissive? Am I somebody who wants to separate in my legalism and, 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 and pull away and be a separatist from sinners? Am I, am I dismissive of those that aren't like me because they sin differently than I do? Do I want to separate myself from those who don't get it, who are blind, who are miring in their own cesspool of iniquity and sin? What we have to see about this man here is he's a picture of the unconverted sinner who the Lord comes to and the Lord grabs him by the hand and directs his path. He is an unconverted sinner who is in need of grace and mercy. Am I a friend of sinners or am I projected as a foe to sinners? Jesus, in his initial encounter, takes this sinner blind by the hand, and leads him. And he leads him, what we see here at the end of verse 23, into a, what, what is, Mark records to us is a progressive healing. Again, look at verse 23, the remainder of the passage. He led him by the hand out of the village to this private one-on-one -on -one encounter, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So we see the first touch by Jesus here. He spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, similar to how Jesus had touched the, put his fingers in the ears of the deaf man and spit on his hands and touches the deaf man's tongue. There's a lot of spitting going on here. And I, I admit, it, I feel like it's kind of gross. At least this man didn't see it coming. Nonetheless, 
Jesus proceeded here to ask a question, a very peculiar question. He asks the question that could cause us to doubt even in this. He asked this man, do you see anything? Why? Does Jesus not have confidence in his own ability? Is Jesus here having a crisis of faith, as some liberal commentators might say? Critical commentators? Does Jesus not know what's going on? Some would even argue this passage doesn't even belong in the Bible because Matthew, Luke, and John don't record it. Jesus asking the question could appear suspect here. I want you to understand, and I want you to look at this passage, and I want this passage to build confidence in the Word of God for you. This passage gives me confidence in the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, the reliability of Scripture. The early church would not have fabricated this one. No, not at all. But first, Jesus asks the question, but it seems to get worse, because hear the man's response. The man says, I see people. Like, I can kind of see, but I see people, but they look like trees walking. Well, this is an indication that he probably was not born blind. He knew what objects looked like in some form or fashion. But as I stated earlier, this stands in direct contrast to everything Mark has shown us up until this point. Remember, immediately. Everything Jesus does, he does all things well, and he does it immediately. But not here. What's going on, Mark? This man can see, but it's not clearly. Is Jesus' work incomplete? Is his touch not sufficient? How does Jesus respond to this man who says, I see people, but they look like trees walking? Look again at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This man needed a second touch. He needed a second touch from Christ. And upon the second touch from Jesus, he's fully restored. And he saw things clearly. So what we have to make of this is that this is a progressive healing. But that doesn't clear the confusion about this passage. Why? We need to ask why. And I would submit to you, this is why. Because this account is not about Jesus' ability to heal. That has been established already. This is not about Jesus' ability to heal or even about the man seeing. No, in fact, this passage is about the disciples. It is about the disciples' progression of growth from confusion to clarity. One thing that Mark does is he creates what is called the Mark sandwich. And he will put things together bracketed by two other accounts to tell a fuller story, to give a bigger picture so that we might see even clearer. And this is what Mark is doing here. So how do we make sense of this? Well, first, we must understand you cannot read verses 22 through 26 in isolation from what's going on around in Mark's gospel. If we do, we will be like the man only seeing trees and not the forest. So let's make sense of this. Why the progressive healing? 
Let me call your attention to the previous passage. I won't read it all, but you can just glance over that and follow along here. Previously, Jesus is asking questions. You will notice here in the previous passage, verses 14 through 21, Jesus asks, asks a bunch of questions. Well, then we would also see in this passage, Jesus asks a question. And then you know what you would also notice is in the passage after this one, Jesus asks two questions. So we have a series of Jesus asking questions. In the first passage, it's to the disciples. In the last passage after this one, it's to the disciples. So we are bracketed by questions from Jesus geared to the disciples. Then this is inserted in between. Follow along. The first passage ends with the question, do you not yet understand? Jesus is pointing to the blindness spiritually of the disciples. He is equating blindness with understanding. Then what we would see in the following passage, verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks the question from, from the general to the specific. And who is he asking the question to? To the disciples. And the answer from Peter in the second passage is the great confession. Reveals Peter's clarity of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time that statement is made in all of Mark's gospel. They finally get it. They finally have moved from their confusion, do you not yet understand, to the clarity, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the promised seed of the woman. You are the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. You are the fulfillment of Abraham's promise in, in Genesis 12. You are the one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. You are the suffering servant of Isaiah. They begin to see the plan of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there is confusion to clarity what's going on. But what happens in between? We have this progressive healing of Jesus with this man. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. But then he has clarity. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So what Mark is doing by giving us this account, it is an illustration it is an illustrative account. It is an illustrative scene that opens up Act 2 to show us where we're going from where we came from. It's not that Jesus' work is incomplete. It's not that Jesus can't immediately heal when he does because remember how, well, at the end of Act 2, Jesus heals a blind man and he does it immediately. So this is how we must make sense of what's going on here. It's not that the man didn't have enough faith and then he had more faith so he got to see no, not at all. It is showing us the progression of the disciples from confusion to clarity through this illustrative healing. And then Jesus gives him in verse 26 a final charge. Look, look with me here. He sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus commands obedience from the man. But notice the sequence. Notice the sequence in this man's day. Wakes up blind. Well, that's representative of his spiritual state. Dead in his trespasses and sins. No eyes to see, spiritually speaking. He goes from blindness to confusion to clarity to obedience. Obedience, true obedience, is a result of being touched by Christ. It is a result of experiencing the grace and mercy of God in Christ. A heart of obedience comes from a heart that is 
was once stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh that has been renewed, regenerated, born again. And so he says to him, do not even enter the village, probably because their time in Bethsaida is short. They need to get to Caesarea Philippi. Peter's got to make the confession. Jesus needs to start predicting the suffering of the Messiah, which he does three times in Acts 2. And then they need to make their way to Jerusalem because the passion is going to commence. Nonetheless, what we see here is this charge that Jesus gives to the man, the charge to obey comes because of experienced grace. So as we think about these, this short passage here, this is a brief transitional scene that Mark introduces us to here in Act 2. But what Mark really is doing as the Holy Spirit, the superintendent author of this passage, he's bringing us face to face with ourselves. We have to see this. We are like the blind man. We are like the disciples. Whereas the blind man's progress and the process of healing illustrates the progress of the disciples, it also describes you and me, does it not? Think about your own life. Let's take some time to do some inventory and reflect on our own lives. Can you remember the time when you were outside of Christ? The time when you were not a Christian? You were blind, but you thought you could see? You were deaf, but you thought you could hear? You you were dead, but you thought you were alive? You were living on the path to destruction, and you didn't even know it? You didn't have a concern whatsoever. You didn't know Christ and you had no interest in knowing Him. This describes all of us at some point. I pray it was early in your life. But just as Jesus came to Bethsaida, He came to you, believer. Not physically, but maybe through a faithful witness. Through the proclamation of His Word. Through a basketball outreach ministry through the love of His people who love Him and want to proclaim His gospel through the testimony of His Word by the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to us. The truth of the gospel was brought to bear upon our lives. And we too had an initial encounter. Read in Romans chapter 2, it was the kindness of God that's meant to lead you to repentance. Christ was kind to you gentle. The grace of God weighed heavy upon your heart. The realities of the gospel became a concern to you. Judgment, justice, righteousness, love, mercy, all these things began to be contemplated by us in some form or fashion. The realities of eternity were put upon our mind. Something happened to us. We weren't the same as before. We were converted. And then we had lots of questions. Lots and lots of questions. You think early on as a converted new believer, you could see, but it was as though people walking as trees. You needed to grow in your understanding. You needed further clarity in your understanding. If you could think back and you can compare what you know now to what you knew then, That'd be a fun conversation. Some of us entered a cage stage and we needed to get locked up. 
overzealous. We had this great zeal for truth, but we need to be tempered with love. J.C. Ryle, quoting on this, likens this progressive restoration of sight to what he says, quote, the manner in which the Spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. He goes on to say, conversion is an illumination. It is a change from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing the kingdom of God. Yet few converted people see things distinctly at first. The nature and proportion of doctrines, practices, and ordinances of the gospel are dimly seen by them and imperfectly understood, end quote. Yet we must understand that as we matured, as we, as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we feast upon his word, as we sit under the preaching of his word, as we gather in the communion of the saints and we make good use of the means of grace that God has given us, we begin to see things a bit more clearly. We begin to grow in our understanding of both doctrine and practice. And we grow, we grow and we understand that those need to align. Our faith becomes more grounded. Our doctrine becomes more defined and refined. And our love and practice becomes more Christ-like. This is the process of sanctification. And it is not just getting better and being nicer to people. Your sanctification grows as your theology and understanding of God grows. The closer we draw to God and knowing him, the more we are to be godly. The more we know of Christ, the more we are to be like Christ. That's the process. So that we are moving from confusion to clarity. That we reflect the glory of God in Jesus Christ more and more. At this point in your Christian experience, this is to be the holiest you've ever been. And tomorrow and more so as we progress. We should never be able to look back on our life and say, there was a time where I was more like Jesus. That can't be in the rear view mirror. We're not progressing. We're digressing at that point. No, we are to be moving forward. Beholding the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We all with unveiled face. But remember, lest our clarity become clouded by pride, we will never reach full clarity on all matters this side of heaven. Let us be gracious in understanding this. Paul did. 1 Corinthians 13, 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He's not talking about when the perfect comes. He's not talking about the Bible. And so many people insert that in and say he's talking about, he's talking about the final resurrection when he beholds Christ face to face and knows him fully in that moment. But he says, until that time, we know Christ in part. We know enough. We know, we know what is required of us. But there is a day when all of our questions will be answered and we will reach full clarity. So, as we would take away from this passage, we must understand conversion is immediate. Growth is progressive. And as Christians, we must pay attention to our growth as well as helping others to grow in grace and knowledge as well. So let me give you a couple points by way of application. 
first, be gentle and gracious. Be gentle and gracious to the blind and to the lost. We know that their sin is wickedness, deserving of the judgment and wrath of God. And remember, they're being true to their nature. They're just, they're being true to their nature. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. They are helpless in their sin just as the blind man was. Maybe God placed that person in your life for you to show them the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. Remember, he took him by the hand. We need to be willing to take sinners by the hand. The unconverted. To be a friend of sinners. And not just a cloister of saints. Second, be patient. Be patient with the young believer. He or she sees a lot of people walking as trees. Conversion is immediate. Growth is a process. And some people hit growth spurts faster than others. But if your growth spurt causes you to have pride, it's not a growth spurt. That person is going to say dumb things. They're going to get themselves in hot water a bunch of times. Let's be patient. All you have to do is think about Peter. Peter's the man. And then Peter's not the man. And then Peter's like this great confession. And then the next thing he says, and he's rebuked, get behind me, Satan. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and proclaims the most convicting, bold sermon ever recorded in the Scriptures. Peter was a lion. Then Peter got rebuked to his face by Paul. He stood condemned. Then Peter writes as a fellow elder to exhort one another. Be patient. People are going to need a second, third, and fourth touch. Maybe a 90th. Just as Jesus never gave up on this blind man, and by virtue Peter, and by virtue you, neither should we. Let's be patient. Let's be kind. Let's be gracious. Third, be humble. Be humble. As we grow in understanding and clarity of doctrines and practices, we must remain humble. It is repulsive to hear high theology coupled with pride because all you know are facts from a book, but you don't know God in that way because the knowledge of God is to drive us to our knees in worship and, and humility. So as we grow, let us be humble Pride clouds our understanding. Humility clears it. Fourth, be honest. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves and with others. We never arrive, let me say this carefully, but we never arrive at full clarity on all matters this side of heaven. Okay? Because if we did, everyone would be Covenantal, cradle, Baptist, complementarian, amillennial, cessationist, partial preterist. And most of you have no idea what I just said. Let me remind you of this. Now we know in part. Then I shall fully know. And finally, let's be realistic. 
A true heart of obedience comes because of being touched and transformed by Jesus. We can command conformity to others, but that's only external. We must be realistic and understand Jesus has to work by his spirit, has to work on the heart of someone whereby true obedience comes. Obedience is from the inside out. It's not conformity or external conformity. Obedience comes from an internal desire. So, as we would even conclude this passage, our journey is one from moving from confusion to clarity. And we are all working and moving in that direction. Growth in practice and in doctrine. Let me remind you what our beloved brother Peter said at the end of his letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and then to the day of eternity. Amen. So as the curtain is drawn back and act two begins of Mark's drama, we receive this illustrative healing. And then the next scene, we will see for the first time clarity breaking through with the disciples. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you love us, that you are patient with us and our many failings. Lord, that you are kind to us and that you showed your kindness to us and that you suffer long with us and for us. Father, may we see these truths. And as we desire to be more like your son, may we live out these truths. That Jesus would be exalted and glorified in our hearts, our homes, our families, our workplaces, our community, our church, in every sphere of influence that we have. And pray this in his name. Amen.